Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Roberto Massa, the host of the Jerusalem Unplugged podcast. And today, for the Middle Eastern series and possibly a number of other uh, channels throughout the network, my guest is Vanda Wilcox. Vanda is the author of a previous book, Morale and the Italian Army in the First World War, published in 2016. But today, we're going to talk about the Italian Empire and the Great War, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. This is a very interesting book because despite the fact it's focusing on Italy, the reality, Wanda is looking at the Italian Empire. So in fact, we're going to talk extensively about Libya, Albania, and also, generally speaking, the Mediterranean. This is not a book about just military history, but it's a book about... uh, how Italians understood empire, and now the empire sort of influenced how Italians in general understood World War I. And given it's 2022, and we are going, basically, to remember the uh, centennial of the March on Rome, I think this is an important conversation in order to understand how fascism eventually reached power in the uh, 2022, essentially, onwards. But first of all, Vanda, welcome. Hi, welcome. I mean, thank you for having me. I'm saying welcome back to you. (laughs) No, thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Now, the first question I want to ask you is very much about yourself. So if you can tell us a little bit about your background and also about the origins of the book. So uh, my PhD was uh, very much a military history PhD on the Italian army in the First World War. Uh, And I ended up working on Italy really because I knew I wanted to be a First World War historian and Italy was an area that was still really neglected. So I came at it from a First World War angle before an Italianist angle, if that makes sense. Um, And after I'd done that and I was working on a couple of other projects to do with this, I was actually approached by OUP uh, to see if I'd be interested in, in writing this volume for their series. So they have a whole series called The Greater War. Um, which is covering the imperial and kind of geographically expanded aspects of the First World War. Uh, And so they they contacted me to see if I would be interested in writing the Italian one. And I have to say it was, I mean, obviously the answer was yes, I'm interested, but I hadn't done a great deal of imperial history at that point. I'd done a, a couple of small projects about the Libyan war, but it was a bit of a new direction for me. Um, but the more I read in the area and the more I started working with the sources, the more enthusiastic I got about it. So I, I kind of fell into it in a way, but I, I really enjoyed working on the project. The book op- opens up with a series of maps, which I think are very useful in locating uh, Italian imperialism, which is for the most part uh, about uh, the Mediterranean and Africa. So what I want to ask you is... Uh, in what ways was the Italian experience 
of World War One imperial. What does it mean imperialism connected to the experience of the war for Italians? Well, this is a great question because this is kind of the heart of the book in a way. Uh, most people don't think of the Italian experience of the war as an imperial one. They think of it as very much a national war. And that was the rhetoric that was used at the time um, very commonly. And it's also the way that a lot of people have remembered it. So what I want to do in this book is propose a really a different framework for thinking about the war experience, which centers the fact that Italy was an empire at that point, not just a nation state. And even though compared to France and Britain, it wasn't a very large empire, uh, I don't think it's very useful to see the French and British empires as normative because there are far more empires in the world, the Portuguese, the Belgians, the Japan, Japanese, uh, the Ottomans, that don't look at all like that. And actually the Italians fit into this wider kind of imperial model. So if we take our starting point that the country that fights the First World War is an empire, not just a nation state, uh, then it needs us needs us to rethink both how we think about the military side, but above all, how we think about resources and, and also the population that is actually fighting the war. So I want us to think differently about who are the Italians fighting the war and other people fighting the war in the service of Italians? Where are the resources coming from? Where is manpower, but also funding, food, all of that coming from and going to, uh, because the empire is, is an expense as well as a potential source of, uh, of material resources. And I think the imperial side is also really important for thinking about Italian aims and objectives. What is the purpose of the war for Italy? Um, and so I think that, that bringing empire into the picture has something to offer in, in multiple different areas of the Italian war experience. I'm curious about something. If we look at Italy today, it's very hard to think about uh, an Italian empire. And uh, even talking to people, I would say that the largest majority of Italians would even start thinking about that there used to be such a thing as an Italian empire. So I was wondering, was there an Italian empire? <laughs> well, I mean, yes, there was. Uh, the fact that it's been downplayed subsequently, I think is very typical. And I would wrap this up with a trend in Italy to not engage with difficult histories. Um, and I think finally in recent years, for example, people uh, working even in fiction, so Italian Ethiopian authors, for example, are starting to, to bring to light some difficult episodes and maybe we start might start to have some of those conversations. But yes, I mean, the Italian imperial experience starts in 1869 uh, with the first moves into Eritrea. Uh, Eritrea and Italian Somaliland are fully incorporated into the system in the 1880s. There's the first effort, the failed effort to conquer Ethiopia in 1896, which leaves a terrible legacy, not only in Ethiopia, but in Italy. Uh, and then when the First World War begins, Italy has just conquered its largest and most important colony to date, which is Libya. Um, so in the 1911-1912 war. And so Italy is not just an empire, but an empire which is uh, growing and which perceives itself to be kind of on the up when the First World War comes around. Of course, the final piece in the imperial puzzle is going to be the fascist conquest of Ethiopia in the mid-1930s. But many people, when they think of the Italian empire, only think of that war in the 30s against Ethiopia and, and the short-lived um, Italian East Africa. But actually, this is a story that goes back to, to 1869. And the, the earlier part of the story is very important in terms of 
the Italian state's projects and also in terms of Italian citizens' self-image and sense of where they stood in the world. Let's talk about another difficult terms, particularly in contemporary Italy, colonialism. So Italian colonialism is still somewhat neglected, not by scholars, but certainly by the larger public. So I was wondering if you can tell us more about the various forms of Italian colonialism. Um, yeah, this is a very interesting question because the Italians had quite a fluid approach to colonialism in the sense that they were willing to embrace different meanings and different ideas of what colonialism might be. So when we look at Italian colonies, some are acquired directly through conquest, and there was definitely a preference for that because it was seen as an opportunity to show off military prowess. Um, and then what we might consider the kind of conventional European colonies um, directly ruled and incorporated into the system. Even there, there's a difference. Some are intended to be I suppose we might say more like British India, ruled by a very small resident ruling class. Others are hoped to be settlement colonies. So the initial vision for Libya is that it'll be a settlement colony on the model really of Algeria and or, or Tunisia, that very large numbers of Europeans will move there, specifically of Italians, and that it will be a way to redirect Italian migration. Um, now, this doesn't start happening until the 30s, really. And even then, it, it it has to be kind of state managed. The Italian people are not spontaneously choosing to move to Libya um, for what to me seem to be kind of obvious reasons. If you are a, a landless peasant in Calabria and you have the choice between moving to New York and moving to Cyrenaica, I'm not quite sure why you would move to Cyrenaica. But, you know, this was seen as a you know, destination for for mass Italian migration. So there's there's two different models of colonies already there. There's also the the so-called liberal empire model which is a very peculiar italian idea um that emigrants could form a kind of empire an alternative form of empire that didn't involve conquest um but created i suppose what nowadays we might call a kind of soft power uh, that these big diaspora communities were going to be a form of power projection for italy and they would constitute colonies and the word is the same in Italian right the colonia is both a formal ruled colony but also a, a, an Italian community overseas and this is a, a, sh a sort of slippage not only in the terminology but in the idea that the Italians in Argentina or Venezuela for example um, or even in Australia might constitute a little output post of Italy that brought real material and political benefits um and although this sounds very strange to people who don't work on Italy, it's an idea which had a, a real appeal and which is kind of posited as an alternative, a viable alternative to going out and conquering places. And during the First World War, we see both of these visions in play, both the idea of acquiring through conquest and diplomacy new lands to be directly ruled and the idea of creating more of these sort of diaspora colonies that might bring back other kinds of, of sort of perhaps more intangible benefits for Italy. I just want to give the listeners a, a, a small treat about this idea of uh, colonies, of informal colonies of the migrants. Uh, you know, today we look at uh, Italy, we think about food and obviously pasta. In fact, what is very interesting is that it's 
the Italians from the colonies that brought back the idea of eating pasta all across the peninsula. But in many regions, particularly in the north, pasta was not very common up until these migrants brought it back. So I think there are lots of interesting stories connected to the Italian uh, migration abroad and also their return, whether physical or through sort of a cultural means of Italians. And there's a lot of evidence that it spreads standard Italian as a language instead of dialect, because if you're living at home in Friuli, you don't need to speak standard Italian. You don't need to learn it till you go to the States or to South America, and suddenly you you need to speak to other Italians. And for the first time, there's that real pressure to learn a shared language. Um, So yeah, I think it's fascinating. And I think it's really interesting that diaspora is usually left out of Italian history. But if you have a country where such an enormous share of the citizenry is emigrating, and many of them come back, right, they're not just gone and lost. As you say, it's this process of of dialogue and of physical movement and mobility around the, the world, not just Europe, but the Atlantic world and, and beyond. Um, I don't think we ought to ignore them when we're thinking about Italian history. Um, or for that matter, Mediterranean history. There's so many Italian communities uh, within the Ottoman Empire or in Tunisia or really spread around, and many of them, again, very mobile communities that are continually toing and froing. I think that they ought to be brought more into the national story of Italy as well because they're bringing back food, but cultural practices, political ideas, uh, religious practices, all kinds of things are kind of uh, quite fluid. I think that's really fascinating. We tend to forget that there was like a very large uh, Italian community in Alexandria, Egypt, you talk about throughout the book, uh, one that formed uh, after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire in Haifa under the British. And so really we see this network expanding. Uh, Smyrna, Izmir as well, had many, many Italians. At one point, the king at least pretends to believe that it's an Italian city. I don't know if he even actually believes that, but he, he claims that he thinks it's an Italian city. So yeah, absolutely. Let me... Let me go back to the question of um, sources, methodology. I, I just want to you know, ask you if you can give us a sense of uh, the material that you've used, sort of your methodological approach. But I'm very curious about uh, the question of chronology. Uh, you make the point that essentially World War I for Italy begins in 1911 and ends in 1923. Uh, for many, like myself, working on Ottoman history, the war begins in 1908. So with the CUP, the Committee of Union and Progress Revolution, of the Young Turks Revolution, and obviously ends in 1923. And w- we say that it may also end later because obviously we have a creation of new nation states and so forth. So can you speak about that? Well, I mean, the Ottoman example is a great one. 1914 to 18 is just not a very helpful way to think about the history of the Ottoman Empire, right? Um, But it's a chronology that makes sense for France, Germany and Britain, although even there we might raise some questions. Um, But what we think of as the dates of World War One are dates that fit with the great powers. And anyone who any country whose war experience doesn't sort of fit neatly into that, um, it becomes a, a real problem to try to com- sort of apply that conventional chronology. Um, and I think this has been one of the probably most important trends in the historiography in the last uh, decade, I suppose, um, is the idea certainly of what John Horne calls the greater war, uh, thinking about the war in terms of expanded chronology. And actually, 
expanding your chronology and expanding your geographical focus go hand in hand because as soon as you start to think more about Eastern Europe, you start to look at um, the emergence of uh, the Baltic states, you look at the experiences of, of Ukraine, you look at all of the successor states in the East. As soon as you start to think about uh, the breakup of the Ottoman Empire too, then it becomes clearly ludicrous to just stop in 1918. So expanding a geographical focus automatically forces us to expand our chronological focus as well. Um, so in the case of Italy, the two conventional dates of the war have always been different in the sense that Italy joins the war in 1915. Uh, so it's supposed to be the war of 15 to 18. Um, my argument in this book is that to, to understand what it's doing in the war and how and why, we need to start with the war against the Ottoman Empire in, in 1911. And we need to go really through to um, the Treaty of Lausanne, but also to the other kind of last bits of geographical tidying up that are happening in the early 1920s. Um, I didn't talk about the Corfu crisis in the book, but arguably you could, you could take it up to the Corfu crisis. Certainly the last bits of territorial transfer and again that, that are an imperial this is an imperial story uh, is is actually the transfer of Jubaland uh, to Italian Somalia which is in 1924 so there's bits of the kind of post-war treaties and and territorial transfers that are going on right the way through um, past the March on Rome and taking us into the early fascist period um, you also asked about sources and methodology um, this is a good question. This is one of those ones where my answer is, uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I kind of dug around and read things that seemed interesting. So I, I've worked with a lot of official sources, um, uh, military records to some extent, but the Italian army archives are very hard to access, as anyone who's ever worked there um, can testify. So I've used a lot of um, civilian government sources, but I've also used things like newspaper sources, diplomatic records, um, and and I guess what I was interested in is not only the official position, but mentalities within Italian elites generally. So I've also been looking at some, you know, publications that are being read by senior military circles, um, uh, some contemporary memoirs and kind of personal perspectives as well. So I, I've tried to have a, a bit of a varied source base, um, but a, a big part of it is just things that I found interesting. I'm afraid that there's a, an ambulance or something going past and you can probably hear it. <laughs> That's the sound of Milan being broadcast to you live. That's real life. I have a question about, um, again, some of the terminology that you use throughout the book, which is very important, particularly for those that might not be familiar with uh, uh, Italian history. So Italy emerged as a country in the late 19th century. And... Uh, the major ideas shaping the newly created uh, Kingdom of Italy were imperialism, which we touched upon briefly earlier, and irredentism. So I was wondering if you can tell us how these ideas shaped Italy in the pre-war period. Why are these uh, ideas so central and important? Yeah, um, I think... This is a, a problem. I mean, one of the problems of terminology is a word we haven't yet used here, which is unification. Italy is unified officially in 1861, but it's also not fully unified. There's lots of bits and pieces that haven't yet been incorporated. And what this means is that from the very word go, Italy is a project. It's not a finished thing. 
Um, and so the question of how much more needs to be done to complete it is an important one. Um, so first of all, we see the acquisition of other territories uh, in the north of Italy, uh, but the, the borderlands around the cities of Trento and Trieste are these unredeemed territories as far as the Italian uh, nationalist mentality is concerned and that this the project of unification is therefore incomplete so one way of thinking about the first world war is as the fourth war of unification the fourth war of the italian risorgimento the nationalist resurgence and that's language which is used at the time by contemporaries and even on some war memorials um and so that sees the war as this purely um national event answering this deep-seated need to complete the project but actually the idea of completing the project of Italy means more than just finishing the borders. It means Italianizing the people. And we'll talk more about that later, maybe. But um, it also means what kind of Italy is this? Is this a kind of um, an Italy which everyone needs to be a bit ashamed of? Or is it an Italy that has a seat at the table? Is it an Italy that's one of the great powers? Is it taken seriously by its neighbors? Is it a military power, an economic power, sort of uh, commensurate with what people feel it ought to be and that its history ought to indicate. And so imperialism is linked to this um, partly as a sign of status and partly, you know, this is what you do if you are an important country in late 19th century Europe. You know, there's a sort of undignified story about uh, when the Berlin conference is first scheduled and nobody plans on inviting the Italians and Italy has to sort of scrabble around this is kind of unwanted party guest trying to wrangle an invite right for this exclusive event and it does manage to get invited but it's sort of an afterthought and it's kind of embarrassing so imperialism is partly about you know can we acquire the benefits of empire in the way that France and Britain have done in terms of wealth and resources but it's also about are we getting a seat at the table so the symbolic value of empire as a sign that Italy has arrived that we have made Italy uh, into this worthy European power um, and it's a preoccupation right through that that the first 50 years of Italian history I don't think it's a coincidence that the first big imperial well, maybe not the first big, but the big imperial war in 1911 uh, to conquer Libya is the 50th anniversary of uh, Italian unification. It, it's a kind of a, almost a staged event in a way to celebrate the 50th anniversary. They unveil the Vittoriano monument in Rome. If you've ever been to Rome, there's this vast white monstrosity in the middle of the city. Lots of people think it's fascist. The number of my students who said, oh, yes, that fascist monument. No, no, no. That's unveiled in honour of the king who brought Italy to unification. It's a sort of big ceremonial event for the 50th anniversary. The war in Libya is, is kind of linked to that. It's a war which is invoked by the media uh, before it even begins to become a political reality as part of this project to show that Italy has really arrived. So it's all rooted, both imperialism and irredentism are rooted in the same sense of uncertainty and insecurity that the Italian project is incomplete. I want to go back to people, Italians, before we actually going to talk about uh, war, warfare, Libya, and obviously World War I. I I'm curious about uh, Italians abroad, and we already touched upon briefly earlier. So. We know that around 13 million Italians left uh, before the war, probably more depending on statistics and you know information that we may gather from archives. And I was curious about their relationship with Italy and vice versa. And also, 
how did the famous motto Italiani brava gente, which I, we can translate as uh, Italians uh, good people, came about? Mm. These um, these emigrants are so interesting, and people have tended to study them in terms of their impact in the societies where they ended up. So people have been interested in Italian Americans and what they mean for America, right? More than what they mean for Italy, uh, traditionally. Um, the relationship that emigrants have with Italy can be very varied and can be quite ambiguous. Some of them uh, feel very a very strong tie to the country of their birth. Some of them really don't. Some of them, uh, you know, are quite happy to sort of wipe the dust from their heels and never be seen again. But others do maintain a strong sense of Italianness and a strong desire perhaps to return. Lots of them do return. It's not uncommon, especially young men go abroad, they make some money, maybe they live uh, and, and save up for five years and then they might go home and marry back home with the money that they've made in the new world, things like that. There's a huge amount of remittance payments. People are sending money to their families uh, to the extent that this is actually a significant uh, item in the national budget, right? I haven't got the figures to hand, but it's making a, a significant, notable contribution to the Italian economy that there is this direct cash flow in the form of remittance payments from emigrants to their to their families. Um, so there is this ongoing connection. What does the state think? Well, again, this is tricky. On the one hand, it's potential manpower that you're losing. On the other hand, uh, it's a potentially destitute underclass that you don't have to worry about being on your shores anymore. You know, you can pack them off somewhere else and they become somebody else's problem. The one thing that the state is very keen on is the idea that they are still Italian citizens and therefore they're still ha liable to all the obligations of Italian citizenship, including military service. So if you are an Itali Italian citizen overseas, you're still liable for some military service. I remember when my uh, brother turned 19, despite having been born and raised in Manchester like me, uh, he got his call-up papers. Uh, he was most disconcerted. I don't think it had ever occurred to him. Uh, but but that mandatory military service that was abolished, when was it? 2001, I guess, the military service was abolished. And um, uh, and that applied to Italian citizens, even second generation citizens, or but anyone who was born overseas, if they still had the citizenship. So in the era of the First World War, where manpower in the military is a very important issue, those citizens were not lost to the or shouldn't be lost, at least the state hoped, to the military resources of the country. Of course, in practice, very few of those um, emigrants were going to do their military service in peacetime. But as soon as war breaks out, the draft is going to apply. Whether or not they come back is another question we can we can perhaps talk about as we get into the nitty gritty of what happens in the war. But the state is is keen to kind of keep them on a on a leash if you like they're they're not they're gone but they're not forgotten and um even though in 1912 they reformed the citizenship law so that this italian citizenship isn't infinitely passed down through the generations uh, and people can renounce it finally if they've emigrated and they have another citizenship um there is still this desire to to see if they can be beneficial to italy in some way which links into this idea of the kind of colonial uh, greatness. Uh, the idea that you, in your own way, in the States right now, would be a little beacon of Italy, kind of expanding Italian influence and power for the glory of the mother country, you know. I hope you're doing that. I hope you're, you know, 
bringing glory to Italy. I must say that I never thought about in these terms of um, how sort of the Italian elites thought uh, about Italians abroad as some sort of a, uh, you know, an example of cultural diplomacy, uh, but uh, not necessarily organized, but just their presence would bring some sort of sense of uh, what it means to be Italians. Um, I, I don't know if it ever worked, obviously, but uh, I, I can see that. I, I can see how they thought about it. I mean, in terms of like migrants' communities coalescing together and uh, sort of uh, bringing their culture to the people and, and the places where they inhabited. Um, even though in general the reaction to Italian migrants was not necessarily always positive. I mean, in America, Italians were treated as second, if not third class citizens, uh, just a little bit above the African-Americans. So, in, And I remember seeing records where Italians, particularly from the South, were often uh, classified as Negroes, which is fascinating too, how sort of there's a different degree of understanding migrants from a specific country. Yeah. Um, and of course, Italians back home are aware of this, and this feeds into a lot of racialized anxieties about what are Italians. Are they white? Are they treated as white? They certainly see themselves as white, but they, they're not. They're, there's a concern about Italian kind of race status in this same time period that, that plays into a lot of these debates uh, domestically, as well as what's happening uh, over in the States or wherever else. Let me anticipate a question that I wanted to ask you later, and I know it's probably more connected to the war, but since you brought about this idea, uh, let's talk about the question of Italianita or Italianness. What does it mean? How did this concept really play a role in the war and the way the war was understood? Um, this is one of those things that's so hard to pin down because... Uh, still to this day, lots of people might say, what does it mean to be Italian? What does Italianita really mean? And there are not a huge number of things that people might necessarily agree on, um, and certainly not in the early 20th century. I want to interrupt you quickly because I think this is very um, you know, poignant now, given that Italy is going to... Uh, you know, to to the polls in a couple of months, and there are several parties, at least two, that they still use the concept of Italianita. And as you said, it's hard to pin down, but it still, it's a, it's a point that is debated amongst uh, politicians. For sure. And the fact that a concept can be sort of slippery and hard to pin down doesn't make it less powerful, right? Um, and those debates are framed, uh, again, in racial terms. Can you be a non-white Italian? Certainly not for some of those parties uh, are competing in the election today. Uh, can you be an immigrant Italian? You know, what? how does that work? It, it is, a, it is um, it's still debated territory, right? Um and, I, and it has been for a long time in different ways. So there's a problem here that I think links us back to irredentism. If you're fighting a war to liberate your fellow Italians from foreign rule, and that's the kind of framing that a lot of nationalists would have seen this in, right? We're liberating Italians who live under the oppressive regime of the Habsburg Empire in, our border, in their borderlands that should become our borderlands, right? So for that to work, you have to know who the people are that you want to be liberating, right? You have to define them in some way. Who are these Italians who are oppressed? So the most obvious way that we define them is just through language. And so, 
you know, the Italian speakers of Trento and Trieste should be brought into Italy. And then all the, how about land? How do we say the land? Well, land where those Italian speakers live. It's, it's already quite problematic because you can see that there's non Italian speakers living in those lands too. And there's Italian speakers who are loyal citizens of the Habsburg Empire and who don't have any problem with being loyal citizens of the Habsburg Empire. And I think that a really fascinating example to me, and, and this is very much a kind of Italian history argument, but uh, is Alcide de Gasperi, who is born in Trento. He's a citizen of the Habsburg Empire. He's a deputy in the Habsburg Parliament. He has sworn loyalty to Franz Josef, and he continues to be a loyal citizen of the Habsburg Empire throughout the war. And it's not until his hometown shifts to being part of Italy that he kind of transfers his allegiance and he becomes the great kind of hero of uh, democratic uh, Italy after the Second World War. But the fact that in his earlier career, he's a, a loyal citizen of the Habsburg Empire doesn't seem to be a problem. But so he's an Italian. Does he want to be redeemed out of the Habsburg Empire? Not necessarily. right? So just language is is a bit of a problematic basis to say who is Italian. There are efforts to provide a kind of ethnic um, identity, but these also found on internal racism because a lot of Northern Italians don't want to be thought of as being the same ethnicity as Southern Italians. There's a lot of direct prejudice against the dark skin and hairiness, supposedly, of Southern Italians. Are oh, uh, you know, do, do Northern Italians want to even see themselves as a single ethnic group. So it might not be language, or maybe it is, it might be ethnicity, or maybe it isn't. What happens to the non-white subject peoples of empire? So there's, there's a lot of slippery concepts about subjecthood, citizenship, nationality, language usage. And actually, a lot of this is, is being hashed out in wartime. What about those emigrants? Is Italianness just a feeling? Is it that you, is it the ones that choose to come back and fight, they're Italian, and the ones that don't choose to come back and fight aren't? The ones who maybe use English in their everyday lives in the USA, are they still, you know, what makes you Italian is hard to pin down in this time period. Um, and I think war often brings those questions into sharper focus because in a time of conflict, um, identity that is claimed and that is either felt or not felt becomes really critical. And so these these sort of overlapping questions of citizenship and nationality, people who might be Italian nationals but are, uh, are citizens of the Habsburg Empire or even citizens of the Ottoman Empire, um, uh, you have them on the one hand. And on the other hand, you have uh, people who are claiming or requesting Italian citizenship who are clearly, for example, Greek in the Dodecanese Islands. Um so these questions um, are not straightforward and war makes them much messier and much more complicated. So I've just told you there is no answer to your question. I don't know if that helps. <laughs> it does. And in fact, it reminds me that in school, as an Italian, we had to read uh, uh, this book, a novel uh, by Edmondo de Amici, called Quora, Heart, which encapsulate very much all of these distinctions. I mean, the book, the story is based uh, in Turin, and you have migrants moving to Turin from the south. And obviously there are questions about uh, who are they, why they don't speak the same language. Uh, can they be Italians like us, like, you know, some of the main characters of the story? And so the story really highlights all of these differences and the questions about Italianita, Italianness. Yeah. 
And Italy has never embraced, and again, this is a very current issue, has never embraced uh, use solely, has never embraced birth citizenship. Um, it regularly debates it in the 21st century, uh, but it still hasn't. And of course, if you believe in irredentism, you couldn't embrace that because it means that you're claiming Italians who are born outside of your borders as part of the national community. So there's a kind of a logic, at least in the in the early 20th century. Um but there are so many differing identities internally that it's it's really hard to pin down one single version of Italianità. But I don't, I wouldn't say that means it doesn't exist, and I wouldn't say that means it's not important. It's more that it's extremely important, but also highly contested. Let's move to the nitty gritty business of war, and I have a series of questions. I want to start with 1911, which we said is a sort of a starting point of a, a chronology. So in 1911, Italy declared war against the Ottoman Empire over Libya. And Libya, again, is an artificial term because it, really we talk about three Ottoman provinces. And I want to discuss Libya later with more details. But can you just tell us briefly what happened and the effects of a war? Um, so yeah, as you say, Libya is, is an artificial name. To, the word Libya is, is actually a colonial project in itself in this time period. To name them as Libya is to invoke uh, the heritage of classical Rome. So what's really going on here uh, is a way for Italy to uh, stake a claim about status and to say that it's the inheritor of the ancient Roman Empire. Uh, and so the conquest of uh, Tripolitania, Cyrenaica and Fezzan is all about uh, acquiring for Italy this so-called fourth shore uh, that Italy um, wants to assert this status as the central power of the Mediterranean. Um, they had first hoped for Tunisia, but once it becomes clear that Tunisia is firmly in French hands, um, the area that we then call Libya is, is the kind of only remaining option, in a sense. Um, it's a war which is sort of pushed by uh, a strong strand of upper, upper middle class public opinion and sort of media clamour right through 1911. And the, the cultural historian Marius Nengi actually says this is a war which is kind of made in the media. It's, it's a media war before it's a real war. Um, and there is this outpouring of public enthusiasm, which I think is really interesting because, again, there's this myth that Italians didn't care about the empire, nobody knew about it, it was tiny and far away and not interesting. But actually in 1911, there's this huge popular enthusiasm for it, right? Um, and it's a, a war with a kind of trumped-up excuse. They send this up uh, an ultimatum to the sultan based really on nothing. And it's, it's sort of invented at the last minute. The, the moment seems favourable, and so even cautious old Giolitti is, is kind of jockeyed into supporting it. But there's been very little military preparation because it's, it's this sort of highly opportunistic moment. Uh, so in military terms, things are not well managed, Initially, it's hoped that a very small force will be able to do all that's required and that just seizing Tripoli basically will be enough to seize all three uh, provinces. In the event things don't work out like that, um, there's a number of serious weaknesses that we see in Italian military performance. The intelligence is very poor. Uh, mapping is almost non-existent. Um, there's even articles in the Italian military press which are kind of referring to the writings of Caesar and Sallust to get information on the internal topography of what Libya is going to be like. And like those guys were writing 2,000 years ago. <laughs> um, fine, that's our up-to-date intel. Um, 
And most interestingly, um, what I think we see in the in the Italian war effort in North Africa here is a great example of people believing their own propaganda, which is that they some of them genuinely seem to have fallen for this idea that they were liberating the indigenous peoples of the region from Ottoman domination and that the Arab and Berber populations would welcome them as liberators, that this was going to be a kind of North African risorgimento. Um, and this ties into that question that you asked that I didn't manage to answer before about the Italiani brava gente. This myth that the Italians are good people is applied in the colonial sphere to mean that people would rather be colonized by Italy than by anybody else. That's what they believe. Um, there's a lot that we could unpack here. How do the colon- potential colonized subjects form this opinion? You know, is there some kind of league table of what it's like to be colonized by the British, the Germans? You know, so this is a very bizarre idea. But this is genuinely embraced, especially within military circles, this idea that the Italians will be welcomed. The idea that the Italians will be seen as liberators, that it's better to be colonized and ruled by Italy than, than anyone else. And that therefore, when applied to to Apolitania and Cyrenaica in particular, that the local population will welcome them with open arms. It doesn't seem to have occurred to anyone that they might prefer to be ruled by their existing rulers or by an Islamic system. You know, it's they're therefore surprised and astonished, the Italians, when they find that actually the local people fight alongside the Turks. <gasps> Shock, betrayal, outrage, terrible... Um, things happen. Uh, Mostly the Italians choose to see this as this act of kind of treachery uh, and they institute horrific reprisals against the local population, including uh, the execution of women and children. Um, And the war is really a mess because they have these complete, the Italians have these completely false expectations and ideas about what's going to happen there. Um, But I find it really interesting the way in which they've sort of fallen for these myths of their own um, in ways that cause very serious consequences. Um, really, the war ends as much because the Ottoman Empire needs to focus on what's happening in the Balkans as anything else. Um, it's not until 1912 we, we see the Italians uh, extend their sphere of action into the eastern Mediterranean. They land in Rhodes and the other Aegean islands and seize them. And they're even sending naval raids against, um, I think they send naval raids against um Alexandria, no, against Alexandretta, sorry, and a, and and they're sailing, certainly sailing up and down off the the coast of Lebanon. Uh, so it's not until Italy starts to actually take the war more directly to the core areas of the Ottoman Empire uh, that negotiations really seriously begin. And I I think it's as much that the the Ottomans can't keep fighting Italy and deal with what's happening with the coming of the Balkan Wars as anything else. So it's not that Italy doesn't win, but it's it's maybe more that the Ottomans lose, if you see what I mean. Um, it's certainly not the great glorious triumph that they would like to uh, present it as, let's put it that way. That brings me to a question of uh, the position of Italy in August 1914. So can you summarize for us how Italy stood uh, in Europe and in the world by the beginning of, uh, of a great war? Italy finds itself in a slightly incongruous position. We've already talked about how irredentism and imperialism are these twin strands of its foreign policy. Um, 
even in terms of irredentism, there are a couple of different possible targets, um, which might include, for example, Nice. So Nice is the birthplace of uh, Garibaldi, the great Italian national hero. Probably we should be calling it Nizza for the purposes of this conversation. Uh, and it's in the hands of the French. And so just as much as, as redeeming the, the lost Italians of the Habsburg lands, there could be an appealing idea of trying to redeem Nice, uh, maybe Corsica, who knows? So um, there are a lot of potential projects. Italy finds itself in a tricky situation, though, which is that its main targets are Trento and Trieste. They're in the hands of the Austrians. But since 1882, Italy has been allied with Austria-Hungary. This is not a natural alliance. It's the price that Italy pays for its alliance with Germany. Italy wants alliance with Germany as kind of continental Europe's premier military power. And it's forced to accept um, membership uh, of the Triple Alliance alongside Austria, kind of as the price of that. But what this means is that in 1914, when the war breaks out, Italy should, in theory, at least according to all these plans, have gone to war alongside its allies. Now, in fact, if we look technically at the terms of the Triple Alliance, it's a defensive alliance. What happens in the July crisis is clearly not actually... Uh, uh, sufficient to, op- to to activate the Triple Alliance, right? It's not a defensive war. It's not an as- ag- aggressive attack by France. There is not actually a legitimate cause for them to impose the terms of the Triple Alliance, but the spirit of the Triple Alliance would certainly have required Italy to join its its allies. Um, but it, it's also worth noticing the Allies kind of violate the terms of the Triple Alliance as, bit, as well, in that they're supposed to have consulted with Italy, which they don't bother. Nobody takes Italy. Nobody thinks about Italy during the Triple during the July crisis. It's just not seen as relevant. But then, when Italy turns around at the start of August and announces that actually it's going to be neutral, um, its former allies, Germany and Austria-Hungary, are outraged, and you can see why. I mean, they've been allied since 1882. They renewed the alliance in 1912. So it's a 30-year alliance that had been refreshed two years earlier. You might think that you know you could be forgiven for expecting them to join in, right? In fact, even the military are fully expecting this up until about two days before neutrality is publicly proclaimed. The military are working on their plans for how many divisions they're going to send to France to support the German war effort, right? So it's a bit of a shock to many people. But crucially, to go to war alongside Germany and Austria wouldn't have given Italy any of the things it really wanted. I mean, yes, Nice would be nice, as it were, um, but it's nothing to compare to Trento and Trieste. So then Italy declares its, its neutrality, then follow kind of nine months of uh, courtship where both sides try to sort of lure the Italians to their side. But really, very, very early on, Italy, the Italian government is weighing its options and thinking about intervening against the Triple Alliance. It's thinking about what it can gain from joining the Entente. And it's thinking both about irredentism and about imperial gains. And we see it as early as kind of mid-August 1914. It's thinking about empire. Um, but it is an awkward position to be in, and it does leave, um, uh, you know, it, it, some Italians also feel that it's kind of awkward to have been allied with the Triple Alliance for so long and then to turn their back on them in this time of need. It's, it's, it's kind of embarrassing, to say the least, right? 
But the other thing I think that's important to think about here is that Italy is not in a good situation to go to war in the summer of 1914. Politically, the country is very divided. In June 1914, there's been the so-called Red Week uh, in the centre of the country. We've had a week of, of kind of practically a socialist revolution breaking out. Uh, they've had to send the military in to restore order. The military is also still suffering the after effects of the war in Libya, which, by the way, isn't really over. Um, so there's a serious shortage of, of uh, manpower and resources. It's not really in a position to contemplate a major war in, uh, in the summer of 1914 anyway. And all of its attention has been focused on these domestic uh, political problems. Uh, Italy is, there's a great phrase from a, um, an American historian, William uh, Solomon. He said, a, a democracy in the making at this moment in time. And the first um, general election with universal manhood suffrage has taken place in 1913. So uh, this has been a really big turning point, this move towards democracy. But in terms of systems and mentality as of how the Italian party political system is operating, it's still a work in progress, like so much else in Italy. So democratization is underway. Um, Industrialization is underway. In name, Italy is an industrialized democracy. In practice, it's it's kind of moving along the path, but it's, it is still this work in progress. And so for all those reasons, too, this is not a great moment to kind of charge headlong into a war. And yet they do. And while the book is not uh, very much a history of a military history of a conflict, but I want to ask you something about it. Um, and and uh, let me tell you, I want to ask you briefly something later about uh, General Cadorna. But here I would like to ask you about the Italian military performance, um, particularly in light of uh, what happened in Caporetto in 1917. So um, Italy has to try to go on the offensive because the point of joining the war is to liberate the uh, occupied territories. It wants to basically conquer territory. It can't just sit there. Uh, so there is an obligation to, to strategically go on the offensive. The problem is, is that pretty much all of the border between Italy and Austria is high mountain terrain. There's only one real area which is even remotely suitable uh, for, for major offensive operations, which is along the Isonzo River. Nowadays, it's, we call it the Socha River. It's mostly in Slovenia. Um, and there's still kind of big crags and cliffs around much of the river and hills overlooking it. It's not exactly kind of flat terrain. And the river itself is also a big uh, defensive obstacle. So there's a strategic imperative to attack. But actually, the terrain is probably <clears throat> much more favorable to the defensive. And uh, it's hard. <clears throat> the Italian military performance in 1915, uh, 1916, Certainly the first half of 1916 is generally seen as not great, but uh, it's certainly not a washout. They, uh, they do slowly improve tactically. Um, when it comes to the fighting on the Western Front, there's been this big debate in recent years about the idea of a learning curve. How does the British Army learn to improve? We could say something similar about the Italian Army. There is an effort to acknowledge some things are not working, uh, to improve them. Sometimes there is a knowledge of how to improve military performance, but the resources are lacking. So the importance of how artillery is used becomes clear pretty soon, but providing adequate quantities of artillery and of, arti and of shells 
is a whole different story. So it's not very helpful to know that you need to have this kind of intensive artillery bombardment if you can't actually provide it, right? Um, so there's there's a multitude of things that need to improve. Tactical understanding needs to improve. Intelligence and mapping needs to improve. Um, but also supplies have to be there to actually enable things to happen. Italians do have a number of, of breakthroughs in 1916, for example, with the, the capture of the town of uh, Gorizia. Uh, and they also fight well on the defensive when in, in May 1916, uh, the Austrians launch a major attack in the, in the Trentino sector. Um, but really, the line is quite static. And in that sense, it's it's more similar to the Western Front than to the Eastern Front. It's not like uh, the war with Russia. It's much more like the Western Front in that this is very much a war of trenches and barbed wire and large-scale immobility uh, with very high casualties uh, for minimal territorial gain. Uh, and that that's the, the kind of main characteristic of the war for the first sort of two and a half years, really. The famous uh, Italian, I would say, public historian, Alessandro Barbero, in a series of podcasts, um, he, he talks about the fact that uh, after Caporetto, so after this major defeat, essentially, essentially Italian soldiers thought that the war was over and uh, that was it. Um, is that an accurate uh, picture of how the Italian military saw itself uh, in the war at that stage? Um, how the Italian military sees itself and how Italian soldiers see things might not be the same thing. So what we have is we have a small professional officer corps and we have a mass conscript army. And those two things generally have a fairly poor opinion of one another. Most of the men don't think much of their officers and the officers don't think much of their men, um, by and large. I think the the kind of institutional culture of the Italian army is actually really interesting. Um, But there is a lot of suspicion held, uh, especially at senior levels of what these these kind of ordinary conscripts were actually like. In the aftermath of Caporato, many men do think that the war is over, they're going to go home, or they hope that the war is over and they're going to go home. Um, But that that doesn't necessarily last very long. Um, What happens at Caporato, first of all, Um, I think we should distinguish between some of the myths and the reality of what causes this big Italian defeat. For many years, the debate was framed really in terms of this as as a political defeat, in a sense, a morale defeat. Italian soldiers stopped fighting and ran away. Um, and on the right, this was because they were cowards and, um, you know, infiltrated with Bolshevik propaganda. And on the left, this was seen as a sign of an attempted revolution from below. And, uh, you know, but actually both of these visions, however it was interpreted, saw this as something that Italian soldiers had deliberately kind of given up. But while that might have happened later on, that's actually a result of a very um, skillfully organized uh, military operation by the central powers. And in the first 24 hours, 48 hours, what we see is tactical and operational defeat through exceptionally good use of tactics from the enemy. Uh, The Italian soldiers don't stop fighting until they're surrounded or until they run out of munitions and no one comes to relieve them, right? Then once the defeat has begun, people start to panic and run away. People start to say, oh, the war is over. People abandon their weapons and walk home if they can get there. That kind of belief that the war has ended spreads quite fast. 
in the context of a of a military defeat of a, of a kind of tactical battlefield defeat but it, it come it's that way around right the, the battlefield defeat leads to the despair the despair doesn't cause the initial phase of the defeat and just as that despair and feeling that the war is open spreads because of what's happening on the battlefield it's also not very long lasting and the italians fix the problem themselves yes british and french troops do arrive to support the the italian position but it's the italian army that stabilizes the line it's the italian army that manages to kind of get things back under control to halt the enemy advance uh and to reorganize kind of quite effectively so i think that Um, This moment of acute despair is absolutely real, but we shouldn't overstate what it is. It's also limited. I took uh, you off from our discussion on on the book just to move uh, on your turf of uh, military history. But I want to go back to the book and ask about Libya. Now, in the book, there are a number of sections dedicated to Libya, and I want to bring them together here. So I was wondering... How was Libya part of the war and how did the outcome of the war affect the Libyan front or theater, better saying? Um, yeah, this is a great question. And I think this is an area where some people might disagree with me. Some people might say what's happening in Libya is between Italy and Libya, essentially, and not part of the war. So what's happening in Libya is that after the war, Uh, officially from 1912, all of Libya is under Italian control. But in reality, that's not actually the case. And that from 1912 to 1914, there are low intensity operations going on, especially in the interior. So the whole of Fezzan is extremely hard for the Italians to control. And all of the interior areas of Tripolitania and Cyrenaica are too. They're establishing garrison posts in the major towns. Their control over the coastal strip is pretty good, but the interior is really difficult to manage. And they're relying a lot on, um, well, first of all, they have 100,000 soldiers there, right? in 1914. So it, it's, a, it's an ongoing military occupation. It's not a pacified um, region that's been fully absorbed into the Italian system. Uh, and they're relying also on uh, Ascari soldiers, who are the East African soldiers who the Italians have been recruiting and using as colonial forces since the 1880s. Um, and in the end of 1914 and early 1915, um, a massive new anti-colonial rising occurs uh, and the war is fought with considerable intensity in Fezzan and Tripolitania uh, and the Italians are pushed out of the whole of Fezzan and all of the southern portion of Tripolitania and they end up only in a few tiny coastal areas Uh, and then not long after that a war also begins in Cyrenaica led basically by the Senussi which is a, a a religious and political brotherhood with presence all across north and west Africa um which find themselves fighting both Italy and even at one point Britain in the kind of border regions between uh, Cyrenaica and Egypt. So Italy is fighting this kind of uh, defensive, I suppose we would call it counterinsurgency war nowadays, um, which lasts up until, uh, so, well, in Cyrenaica 1917 uh, and across Tripolitania 1919. And many historians have chosen to see this as something that's nothing to do with the war. It's the Italians have failed to control this supposed new colony, uh, which is uh, fighting this, this war of, of kind of anti-colonial freedom. Um, my argument is that this is actually something that we need to understand in terms of the war. And there's a number of ways we could see that. 
first of all, um, to see it as not to do with the war is to forget that the Ottoman Empire is part of the First World War as well, right? So if we have Italy and the Ottoman Empire fighting each other during the First World War, that's also part of the First World War because they're part of these two opposed alliance blocs. Um, and it's also important to see it as part of the war of the wider First World War for me because of this continuity of objectives and concerns between what took Italy into Libya in 1911 and what takes it into the First World War in 1914-15. At the most direct level, this connection is seen very clearly in the sense that the Ottomans see this as part of the struggle against Italy once the Italians have joined the war. The Ottoman Empire is sending high-ranking and and high-status individuals when it can spare them. So for most of the war, the the Ottoman leader uh, in Libya um, is Nuri Bey, who is the younger brother of Enver Pasha, the Ottoman minister for war. So he's kind of like a big deal. He's not some random minor figure. He's a very important man. He's he's highly regarded as a military commander. In fact, he's later going to be withdrawn to go off and command the army of the Caucasus, right? So he's an important figure. The Ottomans have considered it worthwhile sending him to be their liaison first to the Senussi, uh, and subsequently in Tripolitania, working with some of the different Tripolitanian leaders uh, like Suleiman and al-Biruni uh, to encourage them, to give them specific tactical guidance on how to fight the Italians, uh, to sort of stiffen their sinews where necessary, and also to encourage uh, the Tripolitanian and Cyrenaican fighters to orientate themselves back towards the Ottoman Empire. It's not, of course, clear that those groups do want to rejoin the Ottoman Empire. They might be fighting for full independence, and indeed they are. But the Ottomans hope to direct these movements uh, to their own gain. And even if they don't rejoin the Ottoman Empire, by consuming a lot of Italian uh, attention, by pinning down a lot of Italian troops, it's part of helping the overall war effort. The Germans also see this as a valid way to prosecute the war against Italy. And they are sending submarines full of munitions, food, uh, cash, and junior officers, staff officers in particular. So there's German and even a couple of Austro-Hungarian officers um, advising these anti-Italian forces throughout. So the fact that even during the, the very fraught Mediterranean blockade, Germany is earmarking dedicated submarines to be just shipping cash and supplies in to the uh, to the anti-Italian forces in North Africa, to me shows this very clearly as they think of this as part of the war. So if they think of it as part of the war, I think we should take it seriously as part of the war. Men who died fighting in Libya uh, between 1915-1918 get onto the Italian Great War Roll of Honour. They are honoured on Italian First World War memorials. They are seen as people who died as part of the First World War. Um, In 1919, in both um, Tripolitania and Cyrenaica, Italy grants a new form of constitution. And basically, it's forced to do this. This is not victory. This is really a sign of, of stalemate. It's hoped by Italy that this new constitution, which grants really very limited political rights to the inhabitants, will be enough to kind of quell what they see as this kind of ungrateful rebellion. It's hoped by the inhabitants that it's the first step to some kind of real autonomy, which it's not. Um, And ultimately, nothing much happens. We kind of subside into this, this stalemate until 
the fascist era, and then we get this very brutal war of uh, basically reconquest. I mean, they call it pacification, but it's really, uh, I mean, which is an awful word anyway, but it's conquering lands which have been fully out of their control uh, for many years by that point. Um, so arguably, we could see this as a kind of colonial defeat, at least in practice, if not in name for the Italians. Um, but the what the various peoples of Tripolitania in particular were doing is also wrapped up in the war and wrapped up in um, the idea at the end of the war that many colonised peoples have, that this could be uh, the birth of something new, whether in terms of greater citizenship rights inside a kind of imperial polity or in terms of full independence. So in 1919, Tripolitania proclaims itself as an independent Arab Republic which is of course very short lived but this is an F, this is an, in theory this is the first independent arab republic the world has seen right it's a very interesting moment um and we could connect that to what's happening in egypt to in other parts of the ottoman empire we could connect that to the sort of wilsonian moment arguably as well um and so i think it would be a mistake to kind of bracket this off as some kind of episode in just italian history which is what has often been done um i think it needs to be put put firmly back into the Mediterranean context and the European context of what's going on. Let me ask you something about the Mediterranean, actually the Adriatic Sea. So Italian forces were also employed on other fronts, for instance, Albania. What do you think the Italians were trying to achieve? Um, yeah, great question. Um, this is another one of those things that gets uh, ignored generally, but I went to a conference about occupations uh, in June, and there were four presentations on Italian Albania. So obviously, the moment of Italian Albania in the First World War has come. Um, what are they doing there? Well, this is a great question. Albania is supposed to be a, a, a neutral, independent state. Um, and yet the Italians begin to occupy portions of it even before they've joined the war. So the first occupation is happening in uh, kind of October, November 1914. So we have one neutral state occupying another neutral state under the guise of sort of peacekeeping and protecting it during the, the wider war. Um, people have argued this in different ways, but my reading of the Italian presence in Albania is that this is absolutely... Um, uh, an imperialist mission to create some kind of lasting Italian presence. Now, we've already talked about how Italian ideas of what colonies are can be flexible. Does it mean that it has to be a fully ruled, directly controlled part of the Italian empire? Not necessarily. Could it be somewhere that has uh, a large Italian settlement population and a strong Italian influence? That could be one option. There are various different models that could have worked. And I think um, this is really the pet project of the Italian foreign minister, Sidney Sonino, and he's an opportunist if he is anything. So his idea is let's get in there and see what we can get out of it, see what we can take hold of. And Hopefully some useful thing will emerge. We don't quite know what. Um, but it, it also shows that you're a great power, right? Because this is what great powers do, is they interfere in other people's business. So Italy sending troops to Albania is also sending messages to 
the French and the British, that Italy isn't only fighting its, up, its little war up in the northeast against Austria, it's also participating in this, in this wider global war. And as the war goes on, the Italian participation in the wider global war becomes more and more significant. They want to send detachments uh, really all over the place to the great irritation of Supreme Command, who are trying to get on with the main job, as they see it, of fighting the war against the Austrians. You know, there's Italian detachments that get sent to the Far East. There's Italian detachments in Murmansk, in the, uh, the, the northern portion of Russia. There's Italian troops that get sent round to Macedonia. Uh, there's Italians, a very small number, but there's Italians in uh, Palestine. So this desire to show the Allies that it is a great power, that it's pulling its weight in the alliance, that it's doing its bit, that it is in, 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 to all effects, you know, fully a global power as well, um, is also at play. Even when the numbers of people being sent to do these missions are sometimes laughably small. I have one more question about the book and a couple of very, very quick questions, you know, sort of general uh, issues. So at the end of the war, Italians um, hope to get more territories, particularly in, in the Adriatic Sea, so Fiume and Dalmatia, which in fact had an Italian majority, certainly in the urban centers. So why were Italian ambitions not satisfied? And also, is there a capital sin that... So Italian elites committed looking at the First World War in general? Well, um, so on the first one, um, why does Italy not get more? I think there's two key issues here. Um, certainly Woodrow Wilson is one. Uh, he is not party to the Treaty of London in 1915 that brings Italy into the war. Italy has a deal with Britain and France. But at the end of the war, the peacemaking is going to be at least partially dominated by Wilson. And Wilson wasn't part of the deal. The USA wasn't present. So he has a completely different agenda and he's totally uninterested in any promises that might have been made to Italy. So that's one problem. Um, but the real problem is that a kind of... Um, magic trick has been played on the Italians. They imagined that they were going to face a defeated enemy, Austria-Hungary, who they could sort of hack bits off. But this defeated enemy in the Adriatic has suddenly magically been transformed into a friend of the Allies, Yugoslavia. And far from being a defeated enemy that you could hack bits off, this is a new friend that the Allies want to please and treat nicely and, you know, let them have their own ports and stuff. Uh, and this is a real blow to the Italians who'd envisaged a completely different type of peacemaking. Um, so that's kind of the Italians' misfortune, in a sense, uh, that, that they had planned for a kind of political scenario that simply doesn't exist. The other thing, of course, is that they're staking all these claims, uh, and not only in the Adriatic, but also in, in southwestern Anatolia, uh, and they don't seem to really have the military strength to back them up. If Italy had been handed these areas that it wants, which include many non-Italian peoples who don't want to be ruled by Italy, could they have actually held on to them? Could they have actually got enough boots on the ground in 1919-1920 to, to retain them? They certainly couldn't do that in, in Anatolia. They send lots of people over to occupy the region around Antalya and then they withdraw. Um, and I don't think they could necessarily have done it uh, all down the coast of Dalmatia. Some people wanted to either. Have the elites committed this kind of mortal sin, this capital sin against 
Against who? Against the people of Italy? Against... I guess in general. I mean, reading your book, you get the sense that uh, they wanted more they they could achieve and, and, and probably thought of themselves as... Uh, more important than they actually were in, in, in a way of speaking. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a concept that I kept coming back to working on this book was fantasy. That a lot of what's going on is there's a fantasy of Italian power, a fantasy of Italian status in the world and what it ought to be, and a fantasy of empire um, that just do not... Um, bear much relationship to, to reality. Um, and, you know, the idea of, of seizing half of southwestern Turkey is very clearly in this kind of complete fantasy realm. The idea that uh, all of the indigenous peoples of Tripolitania were going to rise up and welcome them. Again, it's fantasy. And um, I think this is one of the reasons why maybe the Italian empire hasn't been taken very seriously because so much of it appears to operate in the realm of fantasy and in the realm of rhetoric rather than of reality. But why I think we need to take it seriously is that if you believe in something hard enough, you act as though it were real. And I think that's what's going on here. I think the the Italian um, political and social elites have bought into these, or a, a significant share of them, have bought into these fantasies so deeply that they set about trying to kind of will this situation into existence. And I see this, I mean, I don't talk about fascism in my book very much because it's explicitly not a book about fascism. But I do think in this, you can actually see some very interesting precursors and models of what fascism is going to do. Because fascism too occupies this space in which it tries to, it starts with the rhetoric and then it tries to build the reality. And actually, I think that's what's going on here too. And with devastating effects for the Italian people, uh, for the Libyan peoples, for the peoples of East Africa who suffer an artificially created famine, essentially, due to the Italian war effort, uh, to the people, the, the Slavic peoples uh, and German speaking peoples of the borderlands that Italy incorporates after the war, who were treated uh, appallingly in many ways. Um, and of course, in the ways in which all of this does help to lead towards fascism, the, the price which is paid by the wider European community is also ultimately very high. I have two 30 seconds questions, which are not directly related to the book, but certainly to your work. What is your opinion of General Cadorna? <laughs> well, before I answer this, I should say that his um, great-grandson, I believe it is, um, has a propensity for suing people who express their opinion on him too vigorously. Um, and a, a chap I know has had some kind of weird court case about, you know, defamation of the illustrious ancestor. Um, <clears throat> okay, let's start with the positives. He is not what he's sometimes represented to be. He's not an idiot. Um, he is... Uh, he's an intelligent man. He is hardworking and uh, thorough in a lot of ways. And he's given a really very difficult task to do. And I don't think he does it brilliantly, <laughs> to put it mildly. He's very much a product of 
his background. His father was an eminent general uh, and his father's career was uh, cut short due to what the family see as political manoeuvring. The, the family perceive him as having been stabbed in the back by socialists. And so Cadorna has this driving obsession with how socialists are going to come and undermine all his good work. He's, uh, he's an aristocrat and a very devout Catholic. Um, he is in sort of inherently, intrinsically undemocratic and anti-democratic. He doesn't trust the vast majority of the masses. He wants a kind of deferential, um, very traditionalist society. And his kind of character flaws and his upbringing combine to make him a man who can't delegate, who believes he's the only person who can control everything, um, and whose instinctive reaction to things going wrong is that it must be someone's fault. He doesn't seem to believe in in kind of contingency. Um, he doesn't think that things might happen because of what the enemy are doing. If something goes wrong in his army, it's someone's fault in his own army. So it could be, you know, Bolshevik subversion, or it could be cowardice and incompetence, or it could be that more men need to be executed to inspire the others. Um, but it's always someone's fault. Um, and I think this is a, a very serious flaw in anyone who's kind of heading up a large organization, right? It's never his fault, obviously. It's always somebody else's fault. Um, uh, he does not do a brilliant job, but I don't think he's... I wouldn't caricature him in the way he is sometimes caricatured. What he does is he embraces attrition. And after the first six months of fighting over terrain, which is really very hard to attack over, he comes to an understanding that the only way to win this battle, to win this war, is going to be through a battle of a, a war of attrition. And um, that is a strategy that is kind of morally and ethically repellent. Um, but he's certainly not the only First World War general who comes to that conclusion. Is he significantly worse than his peers in other armies? I would say probably not, with the exception of this bee in the bonnet that he has about discipline uh, and what he calls the summary justice of lead. So the use of decimations, the use of summary executions, the belief that uh, the execution and that brutal discipline is the best way to control his men is, is something which is unusual. Um, and this is a, a kind of unique feature of him. As a tactician and as a strategist, I would say he's he's very much a kind of product of his generation, no better and no worse than the majority. He is not a central figure in your book, but certainly through the pages, you get a sense that he's playing a major role. And that's why I asked you this question. Last question. Now, for the listeners, Vanda is also an expert of Italian football. So <laughs> it's, uh, we're near the beginning of the 2022-2023 season. And being a Roma supporter, I want to ask you, Mourinho and Dybala. Where are they going to take uh, AC Roma? AS Roma. So, yes. <laughs> um, you can't ask me that. I'm far too superstitious. I can only predict terrible things for my own teams. Um, I, I wasn't pleased when Mourinho arrived. I refused to buy into the hype. I didn't think he was going to do anything. He proved me wrong. But he has this season to prove me right. I don't know. I don't know. And on this note, this was Banda uh, <laughs> Wilcox author of The Italian Empire and the Great War, published by Oxford in 2021. Banda, this was a fascinating talk. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>